AI has a people problem. There's not enough data talent to fill the roles technology is creating. QuantHub helps companies develop their key differentiator, their people. We enable organizations to deliver on the power of AI by providing tools to hire and upskill a high-performing workforce. Future-proofing your workforce means leaving behind the old ways of hiring and training. See QuantHub's powerful platform to assess and develop your AI talent today by visiting get.quanthub.com forward slash beards or click the link in our show notes. You're listening to The Big Data Beard. Welcome back to another episode of the Big Data Beard Podcast. I am Brett Roberts, your host for today. And, you know, we've talked a lot over the last couple months, couple years around artificial intelligence and really have taken a focus on the application and the use cases and even some of the, the models and frameworks around AI. But one thing I don't think we've really focused on or talked about a lot is what's powering artificial intelligence from you know, the infrastructure standpoint. So for today's episode, I'm super excited because we have Chris Milroy from NVIDIA joining us. And Chris is a senior data scientist for the public sector with NVIDIA. So Chris, thanks so much for joining the Big Data Beard podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. So you know, I just want to jump in and first just kind of get your take and NVIDIA's take on the world or the state of artificial intelligence as it is today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we see today kind of as the result of a couple eras of AI, right? So, you know, going back to the very beginning of computing, right, we had had this kind of concept of artificial intelligence. And in fact, even the term artificial intelligence, you know, it's very old, right? So when when they talked about that in the 50s, um, kind of what they meant was, hey, maybe we can program tons of rules into systems, right? And those rules, if we give computers enough rules of logic, and if we give it enough uh, data that the logic can operate on, we'll have a smart system. It turns out, that uh, we don't really know how we think well enough to to kind of make that a viable general approach for the world. So then there's the era of, era of machine learning, kind of the 80s and 90s, where uh, with enough data, right, you could make these models that could update themselves as they learn more about the world. And that was, that was pretty good, but the important caveat to that was you still had to have kind of an implicit model uh, of the world that you were then updating with the data. And one of the coolest things about the modern era of AI, which is mostly associated uh, kind of since 2012 with this technology of deep learning, right, is that is precisely that you can have a much more general model, right? You don't have to have a lot of um, you know, domain-specific details to the math in order to still get really effective, uh, you know, capabilities from data. So that last era, the era of deep learning and what people have come to call modern AI, is really where NVIDIA took off as you know, the core computing technology underneath it. Um, and one of the neatest parts of that is precisely how widespread these very general capabilities are, right? I don't have to, um, you know, get a bunch of domain experts together, have them sit down for a couple months and, and work on math, draw from all kinds of different disciplines. I, I can kind of have a technology, deep learning models, that then can be cross-applied to lots of different domains with similar types of data. And that's what makes it really exciting for us is how pervasive uh, and effective these AI types can be. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I think of AI and even more specifically, when I think of deep learning, GPUs 
come to the forefront, right? And and the need and the use for GPUs. So explain why are GPUs so important and, and what are they really being used for when, it, when we talk about AI and deep learning? Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's funny, right? So GPU stands for Graphics Processing Unit. Um, and that's what we started with, right? In kind of the 90s, that was the big thing that NVIDIA invented and then and then evolved, right? Is, is technology for computer graphics processing, processing, particularly 3D graphics processing. Well, it turns out that algorithms from kind of the 80s, plus the kind of math that those graphics needed, uh, were really effective together, right? So the math from the 80s was artificial neural networks. And when you combined that with matrix processing from computer vision um, kind of the 3D model uh, generation capabilities, you got computer vision uh, out of deep learning, right? So that was really what happened in kind of 2012 in particular. Um, you had a competition called ImageNet that literally just combined kind of well-understood algorithms in a clever way with this newly available, very powerful GPU hardware. And that enabled them to train these models in much, much shorter timeframes than they could before, orders of magnitude shorter timeframes. And that pattern has continued where um, the, the math that is at the core of modern AI is what GPUs started out being specialized as. And then beyond that one step, you know, a GPU is really a collection of specialized tools. It's got tools for graphics processing, like video encoding and decoding, right? Video streams. Um, it's got the matrix operators that are their standard for computer graphics. Um, now we've got you know ray tracing cores in them for doing uh, really photorealistic uh, uh, visualization. We've got uh, specialized tensor cores that are designed to do AI, right? So that the whole point though is that collection of specialized tools. What are they specialized for? They're for the things that people are trying to do in modern computing, right? And and um, you know premier among those for many folks is deep learning modern AI. Yeah. And when we think of modern computing, you know, it's not just GPUs, though. There is a full landscape of, you know, what's out there for compute. So where would you place GPUs and and where do they really fit in this computing landscape? Yeah, that's a great question. So on the one end, right, we've got very flexible, uh, very kind of broad spectrum processors, right? That's the standard CPU that you have in kind of every laptop, every desktop, right? And we still need those in AI compute, because there are a lot of things like the operating system that will run on that CPU, that very general capability, right? And then on the extreme other end of this spectrum, you have computer uh, chips that can only do, you know, their very specific function. So this is ASICs, right? Application-specific integrated circuits. And they do their one function really well, but then you really can't, you know, change them to do new things on the fly. And they also, um, they don't have the flexibility uh, that you'd like to have in many cases, right? So in between there, there's a long kind of spectrum. And in much of that spectrum these days is uh, is where you use GPUs. Uh, there are lots of other chip architectures and technologies out there. And it's been really neat to see how the proliferation of AI has led to people being inspired uh, across the whole field. Um, and one of the things that I think has been really interesting is the way in which different uh, types of computing technologies focus on different parts of AI, right? GPUs continue to be, you know, across all of the AI frameworks, across all of the models that people want to run, right? Uh, those, they, they, you know, we, we've demonstrated in, in the performance competitions, for instance, right, that GPUs are very uh, effective right, at doing those things. Uh, but you, you've seen kind of companies pop up that try to take some specific approach 
and, and I think those are really interesting and, and worth watching, but uh, at the end of the day, GPUs are kind of that broad center, right, of compute that is specialized towards AI, but flexible enough to do kind of all of AI um, and with different flavors, right, not just kind of the GPUs that people are used to from their desktops uh, for running computer games, right, but GPUs for the data center, GPUs for the edge, flavors of the same core technology that let it be used for whatever people are trying to uh, accomplish with their AI. Yeah. You know, I, I was just thinking it, it's it's really crazy how this technology has been around for 20 plus years yeah, now, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, a lot more organizations are beginning to adopt it and to invest in this this technology and, and kind of have this be a part of their uh, their AI strategy, right, or, or, or you know, their tool set. But, you know, I'm just, I'm curious, you know, can you talk a little bit about just, you know, maybe the evolution of, of the GPU and kind of how, how it's evolved, like from 20 years ago to today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, right, like we said, in kind of the 90s, you know, we were really heavily focused on computer graphics, right? At the end of the day, you know, you wanted to see some pixels on a computer screen, and fundamentally what we're doing with 3D graphics is we're taking a bunch of triangles, right, that make up these meshes, and we're, we're kind of rotating those triangles so I'm looking at them from a particular angle, right? Um, so that was kind of the really the core focus in, in the 90s. Well before AI shows up, particularly in the kind of early 2010s, um, the next big shift was, okay, you know what we really need to do is not just have individual uh, graphics cards in, say, desktops, but hey, if we put a bunch of them together, right, if we focus a little bit more on networking them together into a more combined capability, that's actually what supercomputers need, right? High performance computers, HPC. And so much of the story of the, the kind of 2000s was, hey, you can use these things for computer graphics, whether for gaming, as we did originally, or for uh, professional visualization, right? So uh, movies, let's say, right, when I do uh, computer graphics and movies. But then it really shifted into this high-performance computing realm. And so then the kind of the things that we learned about that, in particular, there's it's not just the hardware. And that's one of the things I think we'll kind of really dig into. Um, GPUs have um, really powerful hardware. But on top of that, we've layered a number of types of software. And what really changed the use of the GPU in the mid-2000s was uh, the evolution of CUDA, which is the, the kind of language that computers use to talk to their GPUs. Right. And so that was, you know, designed to make programming a GPU much more broadly available than it had been originally to computer graphics uh, programmers. Right. We call this general purpose GPUs or, of course, GPGPUs because we need an acronym for sure. So that move into HPC then laid the foundations for what was going to happen with AI in 2012. Right. This kind of larger connected system of GPUs accomplishing some larger problem together. Yeah, and, and I do want to talk talk about the software and some of the other things that that make up AI. But I, I'm also I'm thinking you know, in in the world we are today, we have a lot of different teams or data scientists that are using uh, that have their training, they're in inference, they're they're doing a lot of things. But maybe they don't need to take advantage of a full GPU, or maybe they don't need it as often. Are there are there capabilities to maybe partition or allow, um, you know, for a subset of that GPU to be used uh, for a specific job or specific team, and then another team can take advantage of part of that other resource? Like, yeah, I feel like sure. that's also a trend that we need to start seeing as these jobs or these projects become more, uh, you know, brought down to the teams. Like, how can we dole out the the resources needed? For sure, there there are at least like three ways that that's I think really. Uh, expressing itself. So for a while, 
we've we've been able to we might think of as like timer compute share uh, a GPU, right? So uh, whether that's scheduling, whether that's using a virtual GPU, um, there are lots of ways to kind of take a GPU and then you know let it be used by different people at different times, right? Or or you know uh, collaboratively like that. Um, the, that's kind of the traditional model. There's also uh, been these these kind of smaller GPUs. We call them the Jetson series. So they're they're designed for very low power, uh, but um, very you know capable, particularly AI work, but lots of other things as well. And it's it's probably neat. A lot, a lot of folks don't know that Nvidia actually does make more than just GPUs. We actually do make the CPUs uh, that we then put into uh, those those uh, Jetson uh, series ports as well. And uh, so that, those are actually full systems. You can actually take a Jetson board and plug an HDMI cable into it, see it on a monitor, right? You've got a little Linux computer, right? So, so that's kind of an interesting way for some folks to get a taste of, of GPUs and the power of GPU computing for AI. Um, you know, for, for 120 bucks, you can get a Jetson Nano that then uh, is able to do AI out at the edge, right? With single digit watts of power, that you can still plug into your monitor and, and a keyboard and mouse and, and operate as a Linux system. But then the most modern version of what you're describing um, is what we just announced in, in kind of the, um, uh, the GTC earlier this year, the GPU technology conference earlier this year uh, that our CEO Jensen announced, uh, the A100 GPU. And one of the, one of the coolest things I think for about the A100 is it can be broken up. Each of the A100 GPUs can be broken up uh, in up to seven slices. Um, they're called uh, multi-instance GPU MIG, uh, and those slices operate independently. They're fault in they're fault isolated, so you could have up to seven people, right, using their slice of the GPU, and each of those slices is as capable on AI as like an, an entire previous gener generation GPU. Um, so that's been really exciting for us to be able to kind of enable teams uh, to share a GPU and, and flexibly, right, go from one slice to seven slices and, and back. Uh, depending on the size of the problem they're dealing with. Yeah, and in this world of, you know, scalable and flexible, dynamic, um, you know, use of resources, that's extremely important. But, you know, it's not just a GPU. We've talked about CUDA already. We've talked about how the software stack, it kind of helped, you know, bring out this, this great technology uh, and really make it even more applicable for AI. So what else is there outside of just the GPU that really impacts the, uh, these AI or these deep learning uh, projects. Yeah, absolutely. There are actually there are a bunch of layers, you know. So, um, Nvidia, you know, we, we sell hardware, right? That, that's fundamentally what we do. But a lot of folks don't know that we actually have more software engineers than we do hardware engineers, because, like I described, right, a GPU is a specialized tool, and so what we do with the software is make that specialized tool useful, all right? So we we've layer we layer all kinds of libraries on top of. Um, that core kind of CUDA technology. Um, and then the, the high-level languages, particularly Python when it comes to AI, tend to interoperate with um, libraries that are specialized to run really effectively on GPUs. And so that means uh, whether that's, you know, a, a, an AI framework, um, the, you know, the common ones for training AI, TensorFlow and PyTorch and so on, um, whether that's uh, Rapids for big data analytics, right? Um, whether that's a high-performance computing code, uh, that runs off of lower level uh, CUDA codes, right? Whatever that ends up being, right? Whether that's graphics, uh, all of those capabilities, there's kind of several layers in that stack of, of software. So that's, that's one big component for us is uh, making a software ecosystem that then is, that makes the GPU useful. And then like we just talked about a little bit as well, 
Um, it's often not just one GPU that gets used to solve a problem, right? In many cases, we need, or, or you know, data scientist needs, right, uh, more than one GPU. So particularly for like large AI models, right, or huge amounts of data, to train that in an efficient amount of time, you combine the capabilities of a bunch of GPUs together. So we've seen how, how connectivity, right, networking technology to be sure, um, and also the software to power that um, has been really important in making GPUs more than the sum of their parts. Um, again, our CEO Jensen talked uh, a little bit earlier this year about um, the kind of rise of the, uh, the DPU, right, the data processing unit, uh, and how that plays a role in, in turning multiple nodes with GPUs, right, multiple, say, servers, um, whether on, on a premise system or in the cloud, uh, into something bigger than some of their parts. And so that's where kind of the really big AI models of the future are often being trained on, you know, cloud systems or on, in particularly on big clusters with tons of GPUs in them all working together. Yeah. And, and this is where I think Mellanox plays a very important role in the NVIDIA portfolio now. Obviously, that was a, uh, a big news of, I think it was, it was last year or, or late in, uh, 2018, but, you know, that, you know, extends the portfolio for NVIDIA. Uh, talk a little bit about how, how are you guys looking at Mellanox and how does that kind of play within the NVIDIA like core set? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we've, we've got a long relationship. We, we closed that, uh, that deal this year. We've had a long relationship with Mellanox. They, uh, they power the networking for many of the world's uh, most powerful supercomputers uh, in particular, right? Um, and, and so that's kind of one scale is, is that's where, you know, a lot of their, their kind of famous, um, applications have come. And, and the other side of that is, uh, when you combine, say, the A100 GPU with a much smaller scale kind of networking capability, right? Um, then you have, you know, the kind of power at the edge that we've seen in, in really exciting ways, right? So you can have the full power of an A100 GPU connected back to your central data center, connected back to your cloud um, with all of the kind of encryption and data protection and, and handling uh, that you want for these kind of secure full spectrum systems. Um, so that's been, that's been really neat. And I think the integration of the, uh, the Mellanox and now NVIDIA networking kind of teams um, has been, has been pervasive. You know, we, we see them, uh, they're kind of, you know, an integral part across the whole spectrum. They're in all the, all of our, uh, you know, meetings and, and as part of our teams, in some sense, we think of it as, as kind of a big NVIDIA family. Um, and, and I think the interesting part of that is how it goes forward and lets us build in more of a, a kind of combined collaborative mindset on the R&D side, right? What can we do uh, when we have a really deep integration with data passing and data management uh, on top of the data processing that GPUs are already providing? Yeah, and, and you know, to add to that collaboration, and, and I know that we're not going to go deep into this today because it's still very new, uh, we'll definitely have to have you back to uh, to provide even more details in the future. But along that theme of it's not just the, the GPU, we want it we want to collaborate. We, we got to talk a little bit at least about the ARM acquisition that was just announced. So thoughts on that initial thoughts, kind of what was the, the process behind that? Right. So, so like you said, um, you know, I'll leave the kind of the strategy questions to uh, the folks who work on that from the technical perspective, right? It captures this broader theme that GPUs are one instantiation of accelerated computing brought out broadly, right? We've talked about how you need ultimately hardware, uh, connectivity, and software, right? Um, one of the things that, we, uh, that we've talked about a lot, right, as we think about how different technologies work together, um, is 
how do you make sure that they're kind of speaking the same language, right? How do you make sure that you are um, thinking about one technology as you're developing uh, another one, right? We talk inside the GPU all the time about co-designing elements of it, right? With, with other things happening in the ecosystem, for instance, the evolution of AI. Um, and look, at the end of the day, what we recognize, right? There's a massive trend towards the need for low power, high performance systems, right? GPUs are certainly that, uh, and connecting those with, you know, again, other hardware or networking or, or software capabilities that enable uh, that that move. I think one of the things that we'll talk about uh, in probably some more depth is uh, the shift from AI being a kind of primarily data center uh, question, right, or capability, um, as it was in the in the kind of the early years, shifting that out to the edge so that kind of AI capabilities become available everywhere. I think that's a big part of this this trend. Yeah, and and. It- it, it's almost like I'm paying you to to set me up for these questions, and and you know it, it, that's 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 definitely a trend that I'm seeing as well. Is it's no longer just uh, training and inference in the data center. You know, the edge is where inference is happening. So, talk a little bit about you know the evolution of the edge. Yeah, yeah, no question. And you know, we can think about a couple kinds of of quote edge. All right, so we've got you know, training that, that still, you know, fundamentally happens primarily, primarily in the data center, uh, in some cases on uh, individual workstations. But, you know, there, there's kind of one layer of edge. We, we, we talk about this as the EGX uh, layer, right? So that's, you know, we think about it as like a GPU or a server of GPUs, maybe a couple servers, but like in a closet at some facility somewhere, right? It's not a data center. It's not, you know, a big high performance cluster. Uh, it is designed to take sensors or designed to take data, and process it locally so you don't have to send all of the, the sensor data back, right? Um, so we're seeing that, you know, um, with um, people who want to do, you know, sorting of, of their inventory or items, right? So that, that's the kind of thing that we might have all of those, those sorting sensors feeding back to a local server, right? That's one layer of edge. But then the extreme edge, right, is when I have, you know, single digit or maybe low double digit watts available to me. Um, and that's where, again, this kind of this Jetson family of technologies uh, it is really valuable. And it's been really cool to see uh, what you can what you can pack into a Jetson. Um, <laughs> the, you know, we've seen, uh, that's hundreds, each Jetson, even the smallest of them, right? The, the 100, uh, 100, 100 or $120 uh, Jetson Nano, right? Literally, you're still talking about hundreds of GPU cores, right? T- hundreds of computational units. And that is, uh, that's what enables, right? Um, them to have, you know, a single one of those, to have, let's say, eight uh, HD video streams. And you can kind of imagine, right, if I've got eight HD video streams, now I've got like a little robot. We've done these competitions where I've got a little robot that can then navigate itself around some environment. Um, and and that's, pretty, that's pretty crazy, first of all. Uh, but second, uh, one of the things we're actually, um, we've, we've been working on and, and are actually uh, presenting uh, for the first time the first week of next month at our GPU technology conference in the fall is, um, putting rapids for high performance data analytics uh, onto the Jetson, right? So for structured data, for tables of mm-hmm. data. Uh, and in many cases, that's fundamentally what you're trying to work with, right? You've got, you know, millions of rows of, let's say, um, uh, of data from your, or about your inventory, right? And you want to be able to do pr- predictions out at that edge, right? Without having to go back to your data center um, all the time. And so being able to do that on a low power, uh, but high performance system. Change the game for a lot of folks, whether that's for cybersecurity, right? Whether that's for retail, whether that's for robotics, uh, being able to make predictions, uh, understand the world, right? Uh, that's, that's really exciting. And, and I think that's been a big push is, is how much can we push forward to the edge as it gets so powerful. 
Yeah, I'm thinking smart cities is another great use case. You know, how can we, you know, in, in a camera be able to do this inferencing where we can actually do object detection or classification or whatever, you know, image processing you need to do for the, the specific use case and not have to send it back to somewhere. You can actually do it right. there in, in the confounds of a camera with the power that that camera needs uh, and then send the the output of the the um, detection to, to the data center. So I think that's another really interesting use case where uh, power, obviously space and, and you know um, heating and cooling come into factor as well. Absolutely. And so let me give you an example of how this all works together then, right? So you've got a camera. Uh, or several cameras, right? Let's say an intersection. Uh, I've got a several cameras monitoring uh, traffic flow, right? Um, and one of the relevant kind of questions is, are the people in that intersection or the cars in the, that intersection uh, behaving in a typical manner for cars, right? Like, are they driving on the right side of the road? Are they going and stopping when they're supposed to be going and stopping? Now, are we talking cars driving in Boston versus driving somewhere else? Because I'll tell you that we are never on the right <laughs> side of the road up here in Boston. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that, and that, that's, that's a great example. So one of the things you don't want to do is flag um, a bunch of local kind of, you know, cultural ways of driving, let's say, right? So it may well be the case that lots of people say, uh, take, take a turn a bit wider, a bit tight, right? Lots of people, whatever, right? They, they do something and you don't want to flag, you know, every single time somebody does something that's kind of culturally understood in an area, right? That's common around the world. And so what's interesting is I want to be able to take my, uh, my camera, run it through a computer vision model right there at the edge, right? Right there on that, that camera system at that intersection. And then determine for the cars that I'm then tracking through the intersection, if I've got trajectories, right? Repeated observations over time in that video, if the trajectories are similar to other trajectories of cars in that intersection. And that, that question, you know, is this trajectory similar to other trajectories is fundamentally what I described there as, as a rapids question, right? It's a, it's a question for structured data analysis, right? I've got observations over time. I can put those into a table and then I can say, well, is that trajectory spatially um, similar to other trajectories in this, the camera's field of view? Um, the the sub specific subcomponent of rapid, something called Q-spatial, is what let, lets that then happen at the same speed, right, that you're getting uh, data pulled off the camera. So you can start calling out then, hey, this car is doing something we haven't seen before or something that we've identified as a dangerous trajectory um, out of this intersection. Yeah, um, that that's extremely interesting. I, I'm a big fan of the the all things smart, whether smart homes or really like the smart cities type of use case. Um, you know, so it's, it's interesting. I, I, AI, the, the, the term AI, the, it's been around since the fifties, as you mentioned at the beginning of the, the podcast, where do you think 70 ish years later, like we, we are at, are you still cla classified as being in the infancy or kind of where do you think we are? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the things I've, I've occasionally said about AI is that it's, uh, definitely artificial, but questionably intelligence, <laughs> right? And, and and one of the things that I think folks need to understand about uh, even modern AI models is that fundamentally what the computer is doing is building its intuition, right? It, in, in a very meaningful sense, uh, it's not like it's learning, uh, you know, simple, compact rules for how to make a decision, how to classify something, how to find something, right? It's learning by example, Fundamentally, in the same way that we teach, you know, kids by example, uh, what objects are. And that's awesome for a lot of reasons, the, the biggest of which is humans don't necessarily know uh, what the right kind of rules should look like. And so we let the computer learn by intuition things that we don't know ourselves. But the challenge with that, right, is even though we're 70 years in, 
you know, we're really only eight years into using this modern deep learning kind of capability. Um, and we haven't in some sense had, you know, an equivalent of, of like a Newton uh, to lay out, you know, universal rules to identify uh, principles for how these things will work upfront, right? What we end up having to do in a lot of AI is experiment and learn empirically whether some particular model or some particular application works or it doesn't. Um, it involves a huge amount of art on top of the science. Uh, and that's, I, that's you know, both what, what's made uh, companies that can make that happen, like NVIDIA, you know, uh, successful, but also means it's a bunch of challenges um, to kind of really think of this as a mature science, uh, because again, there's there's still so much um, art and intuition and empiricism that that's involved in development. Yeah. So would would you say not having a you know quote unquote Newton, uh, you know, is it, that's a, a roadblock? Is it a hurdle? Kind of what yeah. what are the roadblocks that you're seeing to advance this along? Yeah. Yeah. I do. I think that's I think that's um, that's made it hard to um, to provide the kind of guarantees or, or guidance that science is usually able to provide people who are trying to use it, right? So, you know, we, we take some physics and we have a pretty good idea of how physics is going to work. And so, you know, when I go to build a bridge, I have a good idea of how to say, well, this bridge is going to stand up, right? Um, and and we've, we're kind of learning as we go with, uh, with AI, with deep learning, um, how to provide those kinds of guarantees. We've made a lot of progress in that space, for instance, uh, in autonomous vehicles, uh, but there are there are a number of kind of roadblocks to to these kind of things. One of which is uh, as a consequence of those uncertainties. That's why you see a lot of folks get tripped up by kind of ethics and, and fairness and bias concerns, um, right? Precisely because again, there aren't simple ways to ensure that you're doing things right. It's, it takes a lot of expertise and, and experience and intuition, right? Um, I think we're also you know kind of on the roadblocks and hurdles topic, right? Uh, I think there are lots of um, lots of ways that people have are kind of saying, hey, look, we've got these technologies, or we've got these algorithms. We haven't in some sense settled on them as like the, the you know, future that we're not going to move past, right? In many cases, people are kind of continually proposing novel ways of approaching these, uh, these systems. One of the biggest challenges of which is um, the world's very big. There are tons of them. And so figuring out which ones are useful, finding those out in the literature, uh, isn't isn't trivial, right? It's just there isn't yet a common, uh, simple language that lets us be sure that we know all of those different, you know, subfields that might be relevant to a given problem. So it, it seems like, you know, in, in your thoughts that really to take the next step, it's a almost a people and process uh, portion and the technology is kind of there for at least the next step, right? Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, as we continue to advance, all three of those need to kind of um, evolve in, in tandem, but it's more, we're, we're seeing people in process being kind of the, the roadblocks today. Yep, I think that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. So so think, speaking of, you know, we talked about the, the emergence of the edge or, you know, the evolution of the edge. What are some of the other trends that you're seeing that are out there today? Or, you know, if you had to look at your crystal ball, what's, <laughs> what's, what's coming? Yeah, for sure. Well, so, so to that point, let's, let's talk about, you know, people and process, right? I, I'm really excited at the proliferation of, of training programs and educational programs uh, around AI. You know, I tell you, I've, I've hired uh, a number of folks um, over, over several jobs into, uh, into labs and research units. Um, that then, you know, they came straight out of school and I was just so impressed uh, with the level of capability that schools are, are kind of helping students get to, right? It speaks to the broad availability of, of these technologies. It speaks to 
how much AI modeling is happening in open source or in, in you know, downloadable models. Uh, we make available, you know, a huge library of containers and models um, for for folks to just download stuff into their computer and start working on this technology. And so it's been really cool to see that. Um, I think that the challenge that, that you kind of run into, the, one of the kind of big open questions for me is, how is that going to integrate uh, with a world that did not, you know, grow up with, uh, mm-hmm. did not um, adopt early, you know, many of these technologies and is starting to see kind of the, uh, the process friction of how do we integrate those seamlessly into what are going to be, you know, for the foreseeable future, hybrid human machine teaming interfaces. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a really big trend is, is kind of how do we make that seamless? Um, I'm not sure we figured it out, but I think that's really exciting to see that progress for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I've been seeing is uh, going back to, you know, kind of maybe some of the friction between people that kind of have grown into this a little bit more versus have not is embracing the output or embracing mm-hmm. the the power of this, you know, the process or the technology as well. Are you seeing that also? Yeah. And, and you know, one of the, the kind of related uh, challenges, I suppose, is um, that you have to kind of find the right amount of embracing the output, right? You need to simultaneously be able to say, well, look, there are parts or experiences of the world for which we have a lot of confidence the AI is going to do it right. And we need to have a good understanding of what circumstances will make it harder for an AI to do something right, mm-hmm. right? Given the nature of the, the algorithms and the technologies. Um, that said, we don't really have, in many cases, we don't have much of a choice but to use AI or something similar, machine learning of some kind, uh, be precisely because um, the scale of the data flowing around is so great that instead of, you know, we, we think of like, okay, I need AI to help me uh, you know, solve some some end user problem, right? I need it to do uh, computer vision at the edge, like in the traffic cameras, right? And that's that's not wrong, right? That certainly is kind of most of what uh, you know we focus on uh, as data scientists. But even just to hand, excuse me, to handle the data, like to 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 know what you have and and how to you know what can be processed out of it, the qualities of the data, the characteristics of the data, even just getting your arms around that is such a big challenge at this scale. You know, we focused a lot on how do you handle like, you know, ETL processes, mm-hmm. right? Loading data, cleaning it up. That is now such a big challenge uh, that we've, we've started to, ha- to kind of make our pipelines work. We've had to switch a lot of that stuff onto GPUs, right? I'm, you know, I, I teach the the class for high-performance data analytics um, that, that we have at NVIDIA. And, um, you know, even just something as simple as, hey, I want all my first names mm-hmm. to be in title case, right? I want them to be first letter capital, all the rest lowercase. Like even that can take minutes on a traditional processor, right? And so you shift to GPU just so you can do it in seconds. And and the idea is like again, like these are these are you know baseline challenges that when you get to terabyte, petabyte, and higher scales, you know, they're they're their own problem before you get to that, you know, trained model end user stuff, right? So scale has become you know, it was already big, hence big data, but it's become an even bigger challenge because it's not stopped at all. Yeah, and, and data wrangling in itself isn't the sexy part of data science, but <laughs> it's definitely a foundation, right? If you don't have everything kind of uh, structured accordingly, your your models aren't going to be accurate or they're not going to give you the accuracy mm-hmm. that you need. So um, yep. now I'm, I'm always reminded of, you know, asking six or seven or 10 people, hey, just write down how you would write the date. And then comparing right. them all, and they're all different, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on where you're from, or or any, or just it's, it's just all different. So yeah, absolutely. And so that's definitely a a problem that at scale uh, can be very disastrous. Yeah. Um. So so 
GTC, you've mentioned this a couple times, uh, and this stands for GPU Technology Conference. Yep, that's correct. Yep. So there's one coming up at the beginning of October. Why don't you uh, explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah, for sure. So uh, that's, you know, our, our now it's, uh, you know, across the world, there are several of them. Um, the kind of original, you know, big main one is in the, the spring, typically March and, and now, you know, March, April, May uh, with the pandemic. Uh, this is this is kind of the fall iteration here. So uh, we are we're doing um, we're doing sessions, we're doing classes all over the world. Um, and so, you know, definitely uh, exciting for folks to be able to be kind of all participating rather than be uh, have to be in person at a particular facility. Um, it is a, you know, we, we might think of as a, a technology focused conference, right? So it's not sales pitches, right? This isn't, you know, hey, you should come by my thing. This is um, here are advances in the worlds of AI, high performance computing, you know, graphics technology, um, high performance data analytics, all these different capabilities, right? People showing uh, not just that they did something, but in many cases, how they did it. Um, to help other folks, you know, advance the state of the art here in a collaborative way. Um, that's that's been really cool. You know, we um, we alongside all of the the talks and the panels, the webinars, um, we hold classes. Right, this is a, a kind of a central place for folks to get uh, mm-hmm. instructor led uh, classes through our Deep Learning Institute (DLI). Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I'll, I'll be teaching the the high performance data analytics rapids class, but. You know, lots of lots of fields, right? For folks who are new to deep learning, there's a fundamentals of deep learning class for people who want to do computer vision, who want to do you know predictive maintenance, right? Who want to do um, you know robotics applications, healthcare, natural language processing, right? All of those capabilities, right? Because fundamentally, GPUs are used across that spectrum. Uh, they're all showing up there, right? And and so that's that's really that's really cool. Um, plus, you know, as as a bonus on on day one. Um, I, I love seeing our uh, CEO's keynotes, right? They're just always packed with, with new innovations and, and announcements. Um, and so, the, you know, day one uh, in, in kind of the morning, you know, U.S. time, um, you're, he's going to be given the, the keynote of the conference, which is, uh, which is pretty exciting for us. Yeah, and and to your point, obviously with the pandemic, everything is is virtual this year, and and I think it has its pros and cons. Obviously, it's always great to to experience everything in person and to uh, to kind of be there. It's electric at these conferences. GTC is absolutely electric, uh, but in the virtual nature, it means people from all over the world can consume this content as well, and and you know continue to grow. So so how would you recommend? People participate, but you know, if they want to participate, how can they do that virtually? What do they need to yeah. do? Yeah, yep, yep, for sure. Just go to nvidia.com slash GTC. Um, that's the, the main place you'll see the details uh, and the registration uh, links there. Um, you'll need, if you if you want to take the classes, you have to also be attending the conference more generally. Um, it's, it's pretty exciting just to see the variety of folks who are joining us, uh, even just as, you know, as feature speakers, right? We've got uh, all kinds of folks from government, uh, industry, education, um, and, and I will point out, by the way, that anybody who's who is in who has a, a you know educational institution, uh, nonprofit, or government email address, uh, all of those get free registration as well. Um, so just super recommend just you know being able to go and browse through right at nvidia.com/gtc, browse through uh, the the session catalog right and see uh, which things may apply to you. You can filter in that, and I definitely recommend it. Filter in that by uh, your level are you would you characterize yourself as you know technically at what level right or are you there from a more of a business perspective there's sessions designed for folks in that that optic as well so yeah yeah i, I mean and, and it's running from october 5th through october 9th 
Yes, sir. All right. Yep. So, so in addition to the first day electric, you know, keynote, probably some super cool announcements that, you know, we can get you back on to talk about afterwards. <laughs> what else are you excited about that? Like what, what else is, yeah. you know, kind of, are you going to put on your calendar? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so I've seen some, some really neat uh, kind of talks coming through the system. Uh, and I, what I, you know, what I think is really exciting um, for lots of reasons is uh, people taking, you know, what seem like well understood and well trod uh, systems and they're turning, the, they're doing kind of two big directions, doing two thing, things in two big directions with them, right? One is applying them to novel types of data, right? So I can take a standard, you know, computer vision model and I can apply that to scanning electron microscope data uh, as one of our speakers is. Uh, and I can then start predicting uh, the, the properties of materials, right? From these kind of very small snapshots of material, right? Very expensive to collect snapshots of material. I can start to predict how that material is going to behave, right? That's, you know, it's computer vision in a very real sense, but it's, it's looking at, it's seeing things that are at the individual electron scale, right? That's, that's incredible to me. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that's the super micro scale, right? But then you go up to the other side and you start talking about, you know, what can you do when you have lots of GPUs all working in concert and you have uh, a, bit, a whole end-to-end -end workflow, Right. One of the biggest changes that we made uh, with Rapids on high-performance data analytics is the kind of new default model is for data processing. You move all your data onto the GPU and just keep it there. Right. Previous models, you'd move data on, you'd pull it off for something else, you'd move it back on. Um, here, now we're talking about like what can we just put onto large GPU systems and, and process, you know, we're, we're seeing people talk about um, you're processing petabytes of natural language data, right, in near real time. Wow. And, and that capability, which used to be available, you know, primarily to massive tech companies in Silicon Valley, right? We've, we've tried to help democratize that, right? So that kind of anybody uh, that, that has a need to do so can access that amount of capability. So uh, definitely recommend kind of exploring those sessions. Uh, and then, of course, I, you know, I'm, I'm personally, I love, I love teaching. And it's just so fun to show students for the first time, you know, what is it like to process something on a GPU, uh, that they're used to processing kind of the, the <laughs> traditional way um, just to see folks kind of light up and say, oh man, I'm not going back after this. Yeah, jaw drop a little bit, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I'll say I, I've been to GTC before and I, I am always impressed with the sessions and the depth of content and, and what you can take away from that. So I highly encourage our listeners to check that out. Chris, it's been super awesome having you come on. Again, like I said, we've talked a lot about AI uh, and the use cases, but really to hear how NVIDIA is helping power those use cases and helping bring some of these great things that are you know, solving major challenges to life. So thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we hope to have you back soon to talk about some new, uh, some new updates and announcements. Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate the chance to talk and uh, I'll really look forward to, to catching back up afterwards. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify.